This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1, if you would. James chapter 1. Continue our series entitled Practical Christianity. Again, we're just going verse by verse through the book of James and pulling out truths that will help us to practically live for Jesus uh, each and every day. And so um, if you've missed anything so far, you can always get caught up on our website, our podcast, or through the Who We Call app uh, as well. Take some good notes tonight on, on our Sunday evening services. Typically, we don't have fill-in notes on the app or anything like that. Just bring something to jot down some notes as we go through this passage and uh, write down some things that are helpful to you uh, as well. I encourage you to do that. James, chapter number one. Uh, we're going to start in verse number, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's, bring, let's take a look at verse number seven. Last week, you took a look at the progression of sin where it begins with uh, enticement, then it, begin, it starts with temptation, then enticement, then lust, then sin, then death. And then the following verse, verse, verse number um, 16 says, do not err, my beloved brethren. And that's kind of a connector sentence between God doesn't tempt any man with evil, but we're tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed and in the progression of sin. And he says, don't err, my beloved brethren. And then he picks up in verse number 17 where we're at tonight. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, of whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then he goes on to verse number 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We're going to really focus on verses uh, 17 and uh, 18 tonight. I realize we take a look at this passage here. So the question is, if God doesn't give us temptation, if God doesn't tempt man with evil, then what does he give? So if God doesn't tempt us with evil, what does he do? What does he give to us? And the Bible says he gives us every good and perfect gift. That means if you have something good in your life, just know this, God gave it to you. Uh, whether it's breath in your lungs today, whether it's health, uh, whether it is uh, relationships, a spouse, children, a job, the ability to care for yourself, all these things are gifts from God. And God gives only good gifts to us. Uh, he, the Bible says, and again in verse number 17, every good and every perfect gift. Perfect, again, doesn't mean without flaw. Typically, when you see the word perfect in the Bible, it means complete or mature. In other words, we don't get part of our good stuff from God and go find the rest of the good stuff from somewhere else. God gives every good and every complete gift uh, that we have to us. So because of that, we can assuredly say that God is always good. Now, there's never a time in the Bible or in life or anything else where God is not good. That's important to understand, and uh, we'll, we'll, again, unpack that as we get through the, parse through this verse a little bit. But we know that God is always good, and again, we know that all good gifts come from God. So again, God always good, God always gives good gifts, and whatever you and I have good in our life, we know, too that, it was give, know that it was given to us by our Heavenly Father. And again, that brings us to the idea that again, God is always good. 
Now, uh, for some of you that might have grown up in the South or in a, a church that was a little bit more, I guess, more country, uh, like in the type of church that I grew up with, there's a kind of thing that would, they would do sometimes in church where they would say, God is good, and then the people would respond with, oh, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, how about that? And then I say, all the time, and you say, so for those of you that are uninitiated, uh, you would, again, to bring back the idea of the goodness of God, you say God is good, and then the response to that would be all the time, and then you say all the time, and the response to that is God is good. And again, it just reinforces the idea that regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're feeling, regardless of what's taking place in your life, just remember that God is always good all the time. Again, when we go through difficult times and times of testing, we can feel that maybe God isn't good, that maybe God isn't faithful, but the Bible says that uh, God is always faithful and God is always good. And again, this seems like a really, really simple concept. It might, it might seem like we're, we're teaching like an elementary level uh, introduction to the, the person of God. But this is a foundational principle for you and I as we walk through life. Because there will be times in your life where it doesn't feel like God is good. You ever been there before? Like, hey, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what he's thinking. I know that he's good, but this doesn't feel good. And those are the times we need to remember that God is always good. And so again, the goodness of God underscores our relationship with God. And if God is our Father, then we can trust him because he's always good. But, but here's an interesting thought about God, and when I say this statement, you're going to maybe think that it's heretical or blasphemous. While God is always good, all that God gives is not always good. And some of you are looking like, I don't like where this is going, right? The idea that God would hmm, do evil, that God would do, give things that aren't always good, kind of goes against our understanding of who God is. But we also need to understand the totality of God's personhood. God isn't a God that just hands out sunshine, rainbows, and cupcakes. God is also a God that gives sometimes things that are not good. And you say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, I think, first of all, when we think about the things that God gives that are not good, first of all, God's wrath. God's wrath is not good. You can't, you can't convince me of the idea that while God's wrath is just, he's justified in his wrath, it's not a good thing. The, the wrath of God is something that we should greatly fear for the lives of those that don't know Jesus. So again, when confronted with the idea that God sometimes gives things that are not always good, I think of Numbers chapter 21. Children of Israel out in the wilderness, they're complaining. They're talking trash on Moses. They're talking trash on Moses' family. They're talking trash on God. And God sends fiery serpents. And these fiery serpents come, like, just bring snakes, that's bad enough. Snakes on fire. And when you get bit by the snakes on fire, you die. Why? Because they complained. And God was tired of it. He was, he was up to here with it. And God unleashed his wrath on the children of Israel into a form of fiery serpents and death and destruction and chaos. I think all of us would have a hard time saying, well, that was a really nice thing for God to do. That was good, right? No. Was it just? Absolutely. Was God right in what he did? No doubt about it. But in that moment, 
And again, to get the idea of that, we can say that that was not necessarily good. When we think of God's judgment, that's another area where we can say that God gives something, but it's not good. Again, is God's judgment justified? A hundred percent. Is God right in what he does? God's always right. Is God even good in his judgment? God is even good in judgment, but we can't say that the judgment that God gives is good judgment, especially upon those who have sinned against God. Again, as we look through the Old Testament and we see, again, the totality of the personhood of God, and let me just help you for a second. When people say statements like, I like the God of the New Testament, but not the Old Testament, they don't understand who God is. Facts. Because the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. And so when I think of the judgment of God, God tells David, don't number Israel, don't count them, don't do a census, because you can just trust in me. What did David do? He numbered Israel, counted them. He wanted to know what he was working with so that he could have his trust not in the Lord who promised to care for him, but he wanted his trust in the strength of his army and his people. And so he chose to number the Lord, and, and Joab's like, hey, I don't want to do this. This is a bad idea. And David said, do it. And they did. And God sent the angel of the Lord. Do you know how many people died? You might remember the story. How many people died? Anybody want to guess? 70,000. Whose fault was it? 100% David's fault. Who sent that judgment? God sent the judgment. God sent the angel of the Lord and said, get out there and take care of this. And God sent his judgment. 70,000 people died because of one man's sin. Tens of thousands of people died because of David's sin. And David made an offering, repented before God, and God caused the, the angel to pull back. And so was God right in his judgment? Absolutely. He told David not to do it. David did it. David had to deal with the consequences. Was that a really good thing that God did? I think we would look at that and say, no, not really a good thing. And so can God do evil? Mm. God can do evil works to bring about his, his purpose. And again, I know for some of us, you're sitting here scratching your head going, God can do evil? Again, when we think about uh, God's uh, judgment, we think about in the Old Testament, the plagues that he sent to, to Egypt. Hey, look, the final plague was to kill the firstborn son of every household. I think anybody would, would have a hard time saying, that was a really good thing that God did. I'm glad that he did it. But it was necessary as part of God's sovereign plan. So again, it's easy for us to say that every good and every perfect gift comes from God, but there's sometimes where God's things that he gives don't feel good, don't appear good, but they ultimately work out to his sovereign plan. Another thing that God gives that's not always good is God's chastisement. Again, if you've ever gone through God's chastisement, if you haven't, you haven't walked with Jesus long enough because all of us go through it. It's a painful time to walk through. It's difficult to walk through. And none of us would say that it in the moment is good. But again, according to God's sovereign plan and the totality of God's plan, we can look back and say, that was actually a really good thing that a loving father did for me. But again, everything that God sends is not always good. While God is always good, God is always just Again, when we think of God's sovereign will, we generally look through the lens of what we want out of life and we determine whether or not God's good or bad based on what we want out of life. We don't get what we want and we think that maybe God's good or God's not as loving as we thought that he was. But God's sovereign will is perfect. The sovereignty of God holds up 
all of creation as we know it. And so God's sovereign will at times may not seem good. We might, again, scratch our head and try to figure out exactly what God's doing as a result of this. But we can rest assured that God is always good. It's fascinating to think that in Numbers chapter 21, God sent the fiery serpents upon the children of Israel. They got bit, they died. And God told Moses, If you'll put a brazen serpent, a brass serpent, on a stick and hold it up in the air, anybody that looks at that brass serpent will live. And you look at that and you go, what a convoluted system of setup. God could have just said, hey, everybody gets to live. It's fine, just call off the snake venom, call off the fiery serpents, and God says everybody lives. But again, when we look at God's sovereign will, the serpent in the wilderness Numbers chapter 21 was a picture of who? Jesus. Jesus himself said, just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so shall the, man, the Son of Man be lifted up. Everyone that looked upon the serpent would live. And Jesus says, just like that, everyone that looks upon me when I am lifted up will be saved, will live. And so again, we see hundreds of years before the event that God was setting up a story, the serpent in the wilderness and the brazen serpent, Numbers chapter 21, to point forward to the book of John and all four gospels where Christ would be crucified and lifted up from the earth and all that looked upon the saving blood of Jesus Christ would be saved. And then we look back at the story of the fiery serpents and we go, oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, that makes sense. What a beautiful picture of the salvation of Jesus Christ, all those that have wronged God, all those that have cursed God, there's an opportunity for them to be saved. And so then we can look back in hindsight and say, wait, it might have been something that appeared evil on the surface, but at the end of the day, God brought it for good because that's who God is. But again, sometimes we go through difficult times and times of loss and times of suffering and we think to ourselves, oh, God, God uh, didn't send this, it's just happening. No, please understand that God is sovereign in your trials. That God will send you suffering. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Again, God's doing it for your, your benefit because God's good. And he desires to strengthen you through this time. So again, sometimes people come to a verse like uh, James chapter 1, verse number 16, and they say, oh man, God's good all the time, and all the times God's good, and God only gives good stuff. That's not the whole story. God many times sends suffering our way to strengthen us, to cause us to depend upon Him. God often sends chastisement to our lives to, to draw our hearts back to Him the way a loving Father would. And so as we understand really the totality of God's purpose and God's plan in our lives and the personhood of God, we see that God's sovereign will undergirds everything. As we go on in uh, verse number 17, every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We know that our God is consistent and unchanging. <laughs> the idea of variableness, neither shadow of turning. The, uh, there's an interesting thing that happens in Hawaii. I think it's once a year, a couple times a year. I, again, I, I skim headlines. I don't read a lot of stuff uh, on the news. Called Lahaina Noon, where it's the one time that the sun is right over and there's no shadow around anywhere. 
but, but it's, so, it's such a strange phenomenon that there's a, a point in time where there is no shadow where the sun is directly overhead. It's unique because typically when there's a light source, there's a shadow, always. I used to do a lot of video production many years ago, and one of the things we had to do was make sure that there weren't any shadows on it. We'd set up all these extravagant light kits, make sure that we got a fill light and a backlight and a front light and all these other lights to make sure that there were no shadows on the subject when we shot it because light always creates shadows. And your shadows change based on your light source moving. You'll see shadows in one place, and then two hours later, you'll see shadows in a different place. Because light always creates shadows. And light is always different based on time of day, based on your situation, your circumstances, where you're at, things along those lines. But here's the thing about God who is light. There's no shadows with him. Regardless of the time of day, God is the same. God's light that he sends isn't brighter on one person than it is someone else. God's light that he sends isn't for a select group of people. God's light that he sends doesn't cast a shadow on others. God's light that he sends, the Bible says, uh, neither is there variableness, neither shadow of turning. It's the exact same as it's always been. (coughs) When we talk about God's unchanging nature, We sometimes refer to this as the immutability of God. It's one of the attributes of God. God never changes. That's what the word immutability means. Sometimes people think of the mute button on your remote control and think that immutability means that God cannot be stopped or shut up or made silent. That's not what immutability means. It means God cannot change. And so we talk about the immutability of God. That's why statements like, I love the God of the New Testament, but not the Old Testament. You don't understand who God is because God never changed. Now, does God deal differently at different times with different people? For sure. But has God himself changed? His expectations changed? Never. Malachi chapter 3, verse number 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God says, I'm God and I do not change. That's the one of the most frustrating parts to see churches these days, and some I'll, I'll even say so-called churches these days, become more and more progressive. Well, we can ordain female pastors now because things are different now than they were 50 years ago. God never changed. Well, certain things are more acceptable in our society than they were 100 years ago. God never changed. We live in a society today where people are more accepting of different alternative lifestyles. God never changed. God's word, the Bible says, is forever settled in heaven. And the idea of God changing just goes against the very nature of who God is. Us bending the Bible to meet our own personal needs just goes against who God is. And so again, we see that God is immutable and unchanging as we go on to verse number 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Verse number 18 says, Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You see, God has saved us and he's made us his own by the gospel, by the word of God. Again, verse number 18 says, Of his own will he begot us with the word of truth. Now again, at this point, James was probably one of the very first uh, books of the New Testament canon. 
probably, I'm sorry, one of the first New Testament books that was written as far as canonicity or including it in the Bible is one, actually one of the last. But James is one of the first books that these new Christians will read, and he tells them, you guys were saved. You were born again. You were brought into the family of God by the word of God, by the good news, by the gospel, by the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's how you were saved. And so for us as Christians, again, we see that throughout the New Testament, the idea of the gospel being powerful. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's powerful, that gospel. And so again, for us, we look at this and we say, man, if the gospel is that powerful, if the gospel is that important, if the gospel can take people from dead to being alive, if it can change the course and trajectory of not only one person's life, but an entire family tree, we should stake our flag on the importance of the gospel. And so for us at Hui College, you'll hear every single Sunday of the world, and I hope you never get tired of hearing it, you'll hear the gospel preached, that Jesus died for sinners. Because look, if we have no gospel in our message, we have nothing to talk about. The gospel is the story of God's redemption for mankind, and it stretches from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. You can't get away from the gospel anywhere in the Bible. So much that Numbers chapter 21, the brazen serpent, was a picture of Jesus Christ and a picture of the gospel. God being willing to accept David's repentance and his offering to call back the angel of death that had come over Israel was a picture of repentance and faith and God stopping what? Death. That's the idea of the gospel. And so, again, so many times when people read the Old Testament, they read the Old Testament just for uh, the narrative, for the story, for history. Man, your eyes will be opened when you read the Old Testament looking for Jesus Christ and the gospel. Because it's there. I promise you it's there. Look for it. Oftentimes, you'll find what we sometimes refer refer to as types of Christ, T-Y-P-E. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what is coming ahead for us in the gospel. For example, Noah was told to tell everybody of coming destruction. He was told to build an ark. And anyone who came onto the ark would be safe from the coming judgment. The ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. It was a picture of the gospel. That judgment is coming and all those that are in the ark or in Christ will be saved from the coming wrath and judgment and destruction to come. The ark was really just a picture of Jesus Christ. Joseph had brothers. He was well-liked. He was well-favored. He was his father's favorite son. But his brothers hated his guts. They sold him into slavery. Then he went to prison. From that prison, then he was released from prison and then was risen to a place of second in command. Does anybody see where this is going here? He came into his own, and his own received him not, it said of Jesus Christ. When Christ was buried in the tomb, he was there, and then he rose again the third day and rose to a place of prominence at the right hand of the Father. You see that Joseph is a type of Christ? Absolutely. It was just a foreshadowing of the things to come. Again, you read the Levitical law, the animals that were required for the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, 
to take an animal and to slit its throat and allow its blood to pour out over the altar to cover the sins of the people. The sins of the people would be placed on another goat that would be referred to as the escape goat that would be sent out into the wilderness and take the sins of the people so that they would never be seen again. You know what both of those goats were a picture of? Jesus Christ. His blood was shed to cover our sins. The Bible uses the word propitiation for that covering. The beautiful Bible word. And then our sins were taken from us and taken as far as the east is from the west and God remembers them no more because Jesus was the scapegoat for our sin. Again, the Old Testament is so rich in imagery of Christ because the whole Bible tells the story of the gospel. So again, as we look at this idea of God and the fact that he never changes, that he's unchanging, that he's consistent, and that he saved us by the word of truth, by the gospel. And so as we look at this passage again in verse number uh, 18, of his own will he begot us with the word of truth, the gospel, the word of God, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, mind you, in this case here, James, James 1.1, he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's writing to Jews that had been saved, that had been scattered all over the known world at that time. And he's writing letters to them on how to live as Christians. So these are really first-generation Christians. But get this, they're Jews. And any good Jew knows good Jewish history. And they know the covenants that God has made with his people. If we take a look at the Bible, really there's five major covenants. Some people don't count the first covenant as the real covenant, and that's fine. I wouldn't argue with them with that, but there's at least four major covenants, probably five. And a covenant is basically agreement that God makes with another party, with his people. And the interesting thing about covenants versus contracts is in a contract, if one person breaks their end of the agreement, the other person is no longer obligated to the contract. For example, if we stop paying rent, our landlord no longer has to allow us to stay here because we've broken the contract. But in a covenant relationship is the idea of this, that both parties will choose to be faithful, but if one party breaks their bar into the bargain, the other party will continue to keep theirs. Now, if you see where this is going, you'll know that God never breaks his part of the agreement, ever. But if man doesn't hold up his end of the bargain, the covenant is still in place. And so again, we see at least five major covenants, probably four, for sure, four major covenants and one probably as well. The first is the Adamic covenant. And some people don't really count this because they say when God told man to be fruitful and multiply, that it was more of a command and less of a covenant. But the Adamic covenant could definitely be one of the covenants. Second uh, major covenant that we see in the uh, Old Testament is the Noahic covenant. That God promises that he'll never flood the earth again with, and judge the earth by flood. And it gives us the rainbow to be a, a picture of the Noahic covenant. And some people have uh, given us grief about our Hui College church with a rainbow on it. First of all, first of all, I'm not giving the rainbow over to somebody else. It's God's first. It's a promise of God. Secondly, it's not a, a Roy G. Biv rainbow. It's a little bit different color, so nobody's confused about what's going on here, right? <laughs> Some of you don't know what Roy G. Biv is. You should look it up when you get home. But here's the idea. It's a Noah covenant. God gave the rainbow to say, hey, I'm going to keep my promise. And God had kept his promise to never ruin the earth by flood again. That's why, again, at the end of the day, I'm not really concerned about the polar ice caps melting and everybody drowning uh, because God's promise is not going to happen again. 
Next covenant, major covenant that we see in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you three distinct things and I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a seed. And of you is going to be a great nation. It's going to be numbered more than the grains of the sand on the earth. Land, seed, and all the nations of the earth through you will be blessed. Land, seed, blessing. Those are the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. Then we fast forward to King David on the throne. We have the Davidic covenant that we see. Davidic covenant, God promises that the throne of David will stand forever. That God will establish through him a kingdom that will have no end. And we again have the liberty of looking back on all these Old Testament covenants and see exactly what God's talking about. That the Abrahamic covenant, that all the world would be blessed through Abraham is the idea that a Messiah would come, our Savior would come through Abraham, and we are blessed because of Abraham. That's the covenant that God made with him. The Davidic covenant, we look back and we see that the throne that God establishes, the throne of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, and that Jesus' kingdom will have no end. And while Jesus is not here in bodily form right now, make no mistake that Jesus Christ is still king. So, Adamic covenant, again, that's the one that some people give or take as far as the covenants are concerned. Noah covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, and then there's the one that's really super duper important to you and I, the new covenant. Jesus says he has the last supper. He tells the apostles at that last supper, Matthew chapter 26, verse number 28, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus says, this is a picture of my blood that sets up the New Testament. And some people say, well, that just means the the second part of the Bible, right? No, the word testament can be used interchangeably with the word, anybody want to guess? Covenant. So when we look at our Bible as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how it's uh, divided, when Jesus says, this is the New Testament in my blood, he's not talking about the division of Scripture. He's talking about, I'm starting now the new covenant. And the new covenant was prophesied in the Old Testament. And, and again, probably one of the smartest people in our entire church about covenants and loves to talk about this kind of stuff, John Stoker. So if you've got questions, don't ask me, ask John Stoker. Um, but here's what Jesus is saying. I'm beginning something now that is new, that is going to change the world. And so when Jesus says, or I'm sorry, when James says in James chapter 1, verse number uh, 18 here, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation, he's saying to these first generation Christians that they would be the beginning of the new covenant that God established with his people. So again, a first fruit. Uh, It says again in verse number 18, be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So then that opens up this big idea of what is first fruits? Well, typically in the Old Testament, when you planted a, a field, you would take the first portion of that harvest and you would offer it to the Lord as a, a small part of what was to come. It was referred to as a first fruit offering. The definition of first fruits, according to one of the Bible dictionaries I have, is the first and best part of the harvest of crops or processed produce, animals, and firstborn sons. So when you think of the idea of first fruits, it's this. It's the first portion, and it's the best. This is the good stuff. 
Now, God doesn't do last fruits where we basically take our leftovers and scrape them together and toss them to God. God doesn't need our scraps. God desires our first and our best. You know why? Because when God gave us his son, how did he give him? He gave us his first and his best. That's why, again, if you understand this idea of first fruits, if you understand the idea that God desires our best, that God desires our first, that the first portion of something was always super important to God, then verses like John 3.16 just pop alive off the page. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you understand Jewish history, the firstborn son was always the big cheese. He always got that extra portion of inheritance. He always got to speak in place of the father. You can think of the firstborn son as kind of having a power of attorney based on what the father had. He could speak on behalf. He could open accounts. He could, could buy and sell based on his father's name. So the firstborn son always had a lot of power. And so God makes a big deal about the first and the best. Because when God gives, he always gives the first and the best. So when we think of the idea here of being a first fruit, he's saying to them, hey, you guys are going to be the first and the best of what God's getting ready to do. So again, verse number 18, of his own, he will begot, of his own will begot he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And sometimes here at Hui Call, if you, if you ever hear us talk about giving, usually we talk about giving once a year. Uh, usually out of 52 Sundays a year, we usually talk about giving or tithing and, and putting the Lord first in our finances, usually once a year. But we say, I say the exact same thing every single Sunday of the world that I have since the beginning of Hui Call Baptist Church. That we're going to receive an offering. And this is our opportunity to worship God with our tithes, with our offerings, and with our first fruit giving. And the idea behind this is that we offer what's referred to in, in Scripture as a first fruit offering. We give God our first. We give God our best. We don't give Him our leftovers. We don't give Him what we have after, the, after we paid all of our bills. We got a, a couple of a bucks to toss God. We don't do that. We put God first in everything because God gave us His first and best, and God expects us to give out of our first and best as well. We see this principle fleshed out in Exodus chapter 23, verse number 19. The first of the first fruits of thy land shall thou bring into thy house the Lord thy God. Hey, whenever you plant something and you harvest it, you bring the first portion of that into the house of God to God as a first fruit offering. Now, again, I don't have time to unpack all the different offerings that, are, that we find in the Old Testament. I don't have time to unpack uh, the idea of tithing and things along those lines. Sometimes people have said, well, there's never, we're never commanded to tithe in the New Testament, and so the New Covenant erases the, the need to tithe. I don't believe that at all. Proportional giving we find all throughout the New Testament. When you gather together on the first day of the week, you give as God has prospered you. And so again, we give in proportion to what God's given us. And if you read through Scripture, you'll find no one ever gave a 5% gift to God. Nobody. Nobody ever gave a 3% gift to God. Nobody. People gave proportionately. And typically when they gave, it was far and above the 10% tithe. The tithe was considered kind of the baseline requirements for giving. In, in, in biblical terms, you owed the tithe. You got to give above that. That's just kind of how it worked. And so we said, well, in the New Testament, there's no such commandment. There isn't, but there is a command of proportional giving. We never find anybody in the New Testament that gave less than 10% ever. 
You take Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, after he'd gotten saved, he says, I've wronged all these people. I don't want to give back three times what I took from these people. And so you see a 300% offering. When Jesus taught the disciples about giving, all the Pharisees would come up and make a big deal about their gift that they gave. And then there was one widow who gave, and Jesus says, she's given more than everybody here. One mite. It was less than what we would consider a penny. Less than that. But Jesus commended her and said, she's given more than everybody because she gave what percentage of what she had? Anybody want to guess? 100%. She's given all that she has. So again, I don't have a lot of time to debate people who say, well, the Bible never commands us to tithe, so I'm not going to tithe. Okay, the New Testament doesn't command you to tithe, but you're commanded to give in proportion, and we never find anybody in Scripture giving less than 10% ever, historically, scripturally. So again, but here's the thing. You might argue that we don't have to give the tithe. I'm not going to fight with you over that. But you cannot get away from the idea of first fruit giving because it stretches from before the law until after the law is fulfilled. And so again, I choose my words very specifically when I say this is your opportunity to worship the Lord in your tithes. And if you don't believe in the tithe, this is your opportunity to worship the Lord in your offerings. If you don't agree with offerings, this is your opportunity to worship the Lord in your first fruit giving. And so all three of those covers everything. However you choose to give, whatever you call it, this is your opportunity to worship the Lord and what God's given you first. I've met people before who's like, uh, you know, after I've done all my bills for the month, I've got uh, $150 left over, so I'll tithe $15. That's not first fruit giving. That's giving God based on your leftovers. And I believe, and again, this is my personal preference on this, is the way that I interpret Scripture, is that I give before I pay the government. And so if I make a $1,000, say, per, for example, on a paycheck, I'm going to tithe $100. Well, I don't bring home $1,000 on that paycheck. I might only bring home $750. Well, I'm not going to give God based on what's left over after Caesar takes his cut. I'm just going to honor the Lord on what he gives first because I give God the first and the best. My wife and I, our entire life, we could have driven nicer cars, lived in nicer places if we didn't tithe. But it was just kind of a no-brainer. We're going to do it. First line item in our budget is always giving to the Lord through his local church. Always. And there were times where our family vacations, we went to a KOA campground because we could buy a, a camping spot for 10 bucks a night and throw a tent on it. And we could have went to a really nice hotel, stayed somewhere nice, had we not tithed. But we said, we'd rather sleep in a tent with our kids on family vacation than to stay in a nice hotel and steal from God any day. So again, when we take a look at this idea of first fruits, it's the idea of God taking the first portion for himself that belongs to him and to him alone. Offerings of the produce of the land being the first and best of the crops, given an acknowledgement of God's abundant blessings. Term also used metaphorically, when we talk about this idea of first fruits, it's used metaphorically to indicate the first of a much larger group that is to follow, such as those that will be raised from the dead. So when we take a look at this idea again of first fruits, it can point to the first fruit offering, but it also talks about a group of people who are the first ones to go through something unique that will bring about something much greater later. 
And so again, this idea of first fruits that we find in verse number 18, that these people, these first generation Christians that were saved by the power of the word of God, by the power of the gospel, they would just be the tip of the iceberg of the things that were to come. They were a unique, set-apart group that were the first ones to receive this gift that God had. And as we look back at Scripture, we find three primary times that God speaks of first fruits as these group of people that are uh, identified in this way. First of all, in Exodus chapter 4 and Jeremiah chapter 2, God speaks of Israel as God's first fruit. They were God's chosen people, they belonged to him, and they would be the beginning of a much greater group to come. And so again, if you want to study that out, you're, you're welcome to do that. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but Israel was God's first fruit. God chose them, and God told them, I didn't choose you because you're the best, I didn't choose you because you're the strongest, I didn't choose you because you're the smartest. I chose you because I want to make my name great through you. That's an important distinction. Because if Israel was God's first fruit that he chose for himself to show his strength through, then you and I are the portion that comes after the first fruit, that God didn't choose us based on how good we are, how smart we are, or how valuable we are to him. God's chosen us because of the glory of his name. God wants to do something great in you and through you, not for your own glory, but for his. So, but Israel was just the beginning of that. Now again, we've got to be super duper careful with this because oftentimes when we read a little bit too much into the Bible, when we say things that the Bible doesn't actually say, we try to draw our own conclusions and we try to draw lines where there aren't really lines to begin with. It can cause, to, cause confusion, but it also leads to bad theology. And one of the, the bad theology categories that I would, I would say is the idea of what's sometimes referred to as replacement theology, is the idea that Israel now has been replaced by the church. And all the promises in the Old Testament that were made to the church are now automatically given to the church, given to you and I as Christians today. We don't believe that because God still has Israel as his chosen people. Hey, you flip on the news and you see how a teeny tiny country like Israel can stand up against massive world superpowers. How does it happen? It's the supernatural protection of God because God promised. God made a covenant with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. Has Israel broken that part of the covenant? Absolutely. They've turned their back on God. They've rejected the Messiah by and large. But God didn't forget his promise that he made. He kept his covenant. And so God didn't replace his covenant and say, you guys are no good, you're trash, uh, I'm going to adopt somebody who will actually believe in me. And so he didn't set Israel to the side and put the church in place of Israel. And again, if you want to do further study on that, that's sometimes referred to as replacement theology. But please, I, I, I caution you. Please do not spend hours on YouTube watching people's, you know, different things that they pull out of context. Search the scriptures. Talk with solid Bible teachers and theologians. Talk with your pastor. Look, you can find YouTube videos to say anything that you want to. But we need to come back to what does the Bible say? And again, we, we cannot draw lines where God doesn't draw lines. We can't say things that God doesn't say. And again, if God made a promise to Israel that they would be his people and he reneged on that promise, then God's promises aren't really that good after all. 
or God's promises are only good for as long as he chooses to make them, and then he's going to take them back if we don't meet our end of the bargain. Then that's a contract that's not a covenant, and God made covenants with Israel. So again, it's a big deal that Israel is God's first fruit. <coughs> I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. There's only one person in all of human history who died, rose again, and never died again. I mean, think about Lazarus. Lazarus was in the tomb for three days. He stunk. They said, Jesus, you're too late. You didn't make it. And Jesus says, no, it's not over yet. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus got up. So Jesus was not the first person to be resurrected. But you know the problem with Lazarus? He ended up dying again. But there was one person who rose to life and never died again, and his name was Jesus. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20 says that as Christ was risen, so you and I will rise at the resurrection. That in the end times, you and I will bodily rise from the grave, will receive a glorified body, and will be with Jesus forever after that. But Jesus is the first fruit. The first and the best of the resurrection. The Bible also speaks in Romans chapter 8, verse number 23, that, that these believers have been given the Holy Spirit as a first fruit. Again, early on in Christianity, like if you read through the book of Acts, people got the Holy Spirit in different ways. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would fall upon people as they were gathered in a gathering. Sometimes people would lay hands on somebody and they would receive the Holy Spirit. And again, we don't see the Holy Spirit working that way today because if, once you get saved, you automatically get the Holy Spirit now. And so we see in the book of Acts things that happen supernaturally that no longer happen anymore in Christianity. But Romans chapter 8, verse number 23 says that you were given the Holy Spirit as a first fruit. That these early Christians received the Holy Spirit that would never leave them. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and leave the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, and Samson killed a thousand Philistines, and the Holy Spirit then left. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul until Saul sinned against God, and God took his Holy Spirit from him and sent Saul a, what kind of spirit? Does anybody want to help me with that? What type of spirit did God send to Saul? Anybody know? Evil spirit. So again, the idea that God only gives good gifts just doesn't hold water biblically. God sent Saul an evil spirit to vex him, the Bible says. And so the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit would leave, but these new believers, these first generation Christians, they would receive the first fruits of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would be unique in their life the way it had never been before, but many would come after them later. And so again, this idea of first fruits means the first, the best, and a picture of all those things that are to come. And so James is saying to these new Christians, again, that had been Jews before, hey guys, God's doing something special through you right now. The gospel has been used to draw you to Christ, to save your wretched soul. And now what God's begun in you, he's going to continue on until we see him face to face. And so you might look at this and you go, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I mean, the, the fact that uh, you know, these Jews were the first fruits, what does that even have to do with me? Here's the thing. First of all, the gospel still works. And I often tell people this, the gospel works if you work the gospel. You see, the type of church that I grew up in had the idea of, 
If you live differently, people will eventually ask you what's, what's different about you, and then, then you have the opportunity to talk about Jesus. They refer to that as lifestyle evangelism. But in the scriptures, we see what's referred to as confrontational evangelism. And confrontation doesn't mean we start a fight. It means we confront people with their need for the gospel. I don't sit around waiting for people to come to me. I go to people with Jesus. We had the opportunity this past week to have lunch together as a family. And when we got done, we, uh, we were super nice to our waiter the whole time. We uh, left a generous tip on our bill. And I left a gospel track on top. And we're getting ready to leave. And our waiter comes over and he goes, hey, 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 before you leave, that card. I got one of those last week. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I went to go to the bathroom. And he goes, and on top of the urinal, it says, Jesus, the hope you're looking for. And he was just like, okay, God, that's pretty obvious. And he goes, and so I took it and I, I tucked it away. He goes, I'm trying to work my schedule so that I can get Sundays off and uh, so I can be in church and stuff like that. He said, but what time are the services at that church? And I told him, I said, on the back is the service times and things like that. Uh, I said, but on the back is, is the gospel too. And he was like, oh, I moved here from Texas. I'm Christian. I'm just looking for a solid church. Good. And so we talked about service times and locations and stuff like that. He said, he's going to try to get some time off and, and be in church. But I thought to myself, <laughs> here's some dude from Huicala that's at the bathroom. <laughs> right? <laughs> Awkward to think about, right? And I hope his hands were clean, but he took a card <laughs> out of his shirt pocket probably and set it down before he left and moved on. And guess what? A week later, that card brought forth a little bit of fruit. Now, we haven't seen it come to fruition yet. Nobody showed up here yet as a result of that. But somebody planted a seed, now it's getting watered. Because the gospel works if you work the gospel. There's a couple that came uh, this morning uh, to the 8 o'clock service. I said, hey, how'd you guys find our church? She said, we've been looking online for a Bible preaching church. Man, good for you. She said, I got saved back in November. And she says, I'm watching a lot of videos online and listening to preaching podcasts and stuff like that. She said, but all the good ones say, find yourself a local Bible teaching church to get plugged into. She said, so that's why we're here. I said, that's great. I said, how did you pick out our church out of you know, the hundreds of churches on island? No lie, here's what she said. I went outside one day and taped on the front of my door was one of those little cards. And she said, I thought to myself, God knows what I'm looking for, and so I'm going to give this a shot. And so, no lie, she called this, this past week, she called the church office and, um, and, and talked to Trey, and man, she gave Trey the business, man. She's asking questions about theology and stuff like that, and uh, what do we think about this, what do we think about that, what's our stance on this, what's our stance on that. And man, they showed up this morning. And after the service, uh, the husband texted me, he's like, we absolutely love the service today. Thanks so much for having me, looking forward to being back next Sunday. And I thought to myself, what was it? So here, somebody went next level. They got out like a, a scotch tape, <laughs> like, right? Like, look, I've been doing this for probably almost 20 years. I've never gotten scotch tape out. But uh, next level, I got out tape. and like, I'm going to tape it here so it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> One time I was out with, with Coach Board. We were out hanging uh, flyers for open house. 
And he's like, there's got to be an easier way for this. I go, man, you'll get a system. You'll find door handles. You can like curve it in such a way that it slides up underneath the door handle. You'll find certain security doors where you can just slide it in the side there and you can make it look attractive and stuff like that. He was like, that's, that's a terrible idea. Dude shows up the next time. Here's what he did. He had bought a, a bag of rubber bands and a hole puncher. And he had like cargo shorts on. And so he'd pull the flyer out. He'd hole punch it. He'd put a rubber band through it and he'd hang it around the door, door handle. I was just like, bro, that is so much work right there. But I love the idea of it, like, hey, I'm going to go the extra mile with this, right? But here's somebody just walked past somebody's door, got a piece of tape, put it on one of our cards and stuck it on the front door and just walked on. And guess what? God used that. The gospel works if you work the gospel. And so the gospel's powerful. It not only saved these Jews who the majority of Jews to this day still reject Christ as the Messiah. The gospel saved these Jews who we would look at and go, man, those guys are so steeped in their old religion, they could probably never be saved, but the Holy Spirit of God used the gospel, the word of God, to change their lives and to save them. But then God began something in them that still continues to bring forth fruit today. What's that? You and I. You and I now are part of that original first fruits. Think about it this way. You and I are spiritual descendants of the people that James was writing to. Like, if we were to trace back our spiritual family tree, and we could actually do that, we would find at the top of that tree are these believers that got saved in Jerusalem and then scattered. They're the beginning of what God did. So we can look at this and say, as James writes to them and tells them that they're a kind of first fruit, they're like, hey, I guess we're kind of starting something new. Hey, I guess we're in unique the way that Israel was back in the day. They would never see what you and I see. Again, we have the luxury of, of looking at our current situation and looking at the Bible backwards, but they were just living forward by faith. And so we can look at this and go, wow, that's incredible. And we can say, get this, God is good all the time, and all the time, God's good. You know why? Because the gift of the gospel, where did it come from? Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What is that good gift? The good gift that we have is the gospel. And so this passage here just draws us back to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Most important thing in the world if you're here tonight and there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, make that night tonight. I know the majority of your salvation testimonies, but if you're questioning, you're not sure, be saved tonight. Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you to save you from your sin. And you can be a part of this family that God calls his own. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.